Hey folks, it's the last part of how to be a whole person. This was part seven and it is called addiction. I was originally going to do six because I thought that's a long enough series, but this one's been floating around in the back of my mind for a long time and uh, I knew it kind of deserves its own series and I thought about doing that one day. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that uh, you know it fits too well and I can't leave it out of the conversation. So I'm just going to go ahead and tag it on here. And so today I'm going to give you an overview. It's just a, a simple overview, but I got to cram a lot of it in here in a short amount of time. So I've made like tons of notes. Um, before I get started, uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much if you've been listening. It's, it's one of those weird things. I like, I'm not sure. I've never really published much online. And so I'm not sure if I'm supposed to thank you or you're supposed to thank me. But I am going to thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, several of you, lots of you, actually have given me feedback uh, online, in person, on the phone. And you said you're listening to it. And uh, I know there are people that I've never even met that are listening to this. And I hope it's helpful. Um, it is like this weird, like, uh, people come up, tell you they're listening and you're like, Oh really? Like you knew you were putting it out online for the whole world to listen. But then when people actually do it surprises you and it's humbled me quite a bit. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like people, people are actually taking time out and I don't take it lightly that you would give my voice like 30 minutes of your day or however much uh, that you spent. Some of you have listened to the entire series up until now. And listen, I think you get a prize. Like, seriously, this has been a lot of weighty stuff. And I'm not the most uh, entertaining person or easiest to listen to. And you have a lot of other choices. So, like, here's the deal. If you've listened to all seven up till now, you just message me and I will send you a prize. I'm not kidding. I will send you a prize in the mail. If you just send me a message that says, hey, I listened to all seven of these, you get a prize. Okay, so uh, here we go. That's fine. Um, addiction. I'm going into a local taco place, Fuzzies. You know of Fuzzies. And the slogan painted on their door is, welcome to your new addiction. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want a new addiction. I've got plenty of them already. Most of mine involve carbohydrates. Can I get an amen? Addiction is one of those things that apparently our society tried really hard to overcome it. And since we couldn't, we just thought we'd make it cool. Like if you can't beat them, join them. Right, so you got all this clickbait on your whenever you're on your computer. The the, the new iPhone game is so addicting. Right now, clickbait is only clickbait because it works. Right, so apparently, we've succeeded in making addiction seem cool and something we're supposed to want. And we've had all this addiction to petty things, and it's developed into these like little addictions that have become seemingly impossible to resist. And it's raised an entire new category of questions. Now, I want to start at the beginning. Now, I before in my old days, I had this really simple black and white view of addiction. Like only bad people, because <laughs> that's a thing, right? <laughs> bad people. Only bad people got addicted to things because they quit caring and they took their guard down and they got tempted, so I thought. And I thought, what well, could happen to any of us? And boy, that heroin stuff and that alcohol and all of that cocaine must be awesome. So since I'm not addicted to it, I should be really scared of it because, man, look at how it just hooks people. It's probably really fun, and I'm probably missing out, and I'm just going to stay way back from all that because it could hook you if you aren't careful. So you got to make sure that you keep your distance from it all. But in life, that's not the reality at all. <laughs> now, I want you to think about what addiction is. Addiction is not when you can't live without something it's when you can live without it, but you won't. Nobody says, you know, I need help. My husband is addicted to water. He's just drinking it every day. <laughs> Nobody goes to an AA meeting and is like there in their chair confessing, you know, I just, every day I just can't stop breathing. It's like I wake up, very first thing I do in the morning is take a deep breath and then just breathe all day long. I just can't stop. You know, <laughs> Addictions are those things that you could live without, 
but you've gotten yourself trapped into patterns and this thing seems freakishly impossible to get away from. It's actually a little bit of ironic humor in it all if you allow yourself to zoom out a little and just look at yourself. It's like all you had to do was not pick up the bottle again. All you have to do is not eat the candy bar. But for some reason, it seems like I mean, it seems like not doing something should actually be physically easier and take less energy than doing something. But for some reason, you keep doing it. And it's freakish because you can't stop you. I mean, it's a bottle for crying out loud. It does nothing but sit there on a shelf all day, which is why addiction is so maddening. And even more so, it's maddening because you can stop at any one given time. But you keep falling back into that pattern over and over again. You know what I'm talking about. It's the same thing that causes New Year's resolutions to last until February or maybe even January 3rd every single year. And you're like, what in the the world? Why do I keep on in these patterns? One day you get new eyes and you start to see that you aren't chasing the bottle after all. It is actually chasing you. How many addictions do you have? (laughs) Let me list off a few that you might struggle with. Uh, Noise. Are you addicted to noise? Opioids. Oh my goodness, the opioid crisis in our country is insane. Coffee. (laughs) Social media. Chick-fil-A, anybody? Sugar. Candy Crush Saga. (laughs) the news, checking your email, checking for status updates, work, sports, Netflix. Now, I grew up in a simple world where we didn't call it an addiction unless it was really bad. Like, nobody would have thought that they had an addiction to, like, sweet things. Uh, And then... The U.S. ballooned to like 66% of us are overweight and 35% of us are obese and we're dying young right and left and there's all these diets going on and we're trying to quit but it seems like nobody can. So the thing about addictions is if you want to really know if it's an addiction, all you have to do is tell yourself you're going to quit and when you won't quit and you make up an excuse for not quitting later on, guess what? It's an addiction. The problem with many of us is that we never try to quit because we don't want to face the reality that it has us deeper than we want to admit. Like, what are the things that you have a sense that might not be inherently good for you, but you refuse to stop doing? I grew up around a family that had a particular addiction, and I got to kind of watch from the outside looking in because I was the only one in all of my family, extended family and all, who did not drink coffee And every time we had a family get-together, it's like coffee drinkers everywhere. And when I got to be a little older and I got a little solid against coffee, I was like anti-coffee, the thing that annoyed me was, one, like I watched their refusal to go without it for even a day. And they would get all grumpy and stuff. And then, B, like all of the peripheral effects that they didn't seem to notice, like the stains that got everywhere. And they would leave coffee grinds in the coffee maker. And there was like all this day-old coffee junk laying around and it annoyed me because I didn't do coffee but I failed to see the ones that I did because I did do sugar and I remember the first time in my adult life I tried to quit sugar this was years later I didn't think anything of it until I tried to quit so I tried to quit desserts because I'm getting a little pudgy you know and I'm thinking I need to cut back on the desserts so I tried to quit and then I found myself Days later, eating those granola bars that are loaded with sugar and then like flavored yogurt. And it occurred to me one day, you know, Seth, uh, you're eating just as much sugar as you were before. So I tried to quit those things. And then I found myself like figuring out ways to get to like strategize to get sugar into my diet kind of in the back of my mind, like through sweet tea or any way that I could get it. And I remember, this is, like my, this is like my sugar rock bottom moment. I found myself in the cabinet one night getting a big giant scoop of peanut butter out of the jar. And I had this light come on like, oh, whoa. Like, I am no different than all 
of the coffee addicts and all of the meth addicts that would come into our pharmacy when I worked for a pharmacy and they would be like trying to get syringes and Sudafed and all that stuff um, just to get something in my bloodstream. I didn't care. It could be nasty. And I realized at that moment, what was I up against? It had me deeper than I realized. Now, I want to tell you today that everything you get addicted to is based on a buzz or a hit of something that feels good for a moment and leaves you wanting it afterwards. And I, I will get to a little brain science because there's a lot of it, but I want to tell you what you already know. Now, I'm going to get you really depressed for just a few minutes, but stick with me because I'm definitely ending this with good news. Now, there is a very predictable pattern to any addiction. The deeper we go into it, the more desensitized we get and the more that it takes us uh, to get the buzz to get us that got us hooked at more of it that we want. So here's, here's the way addiction works. We do something that stimulates our senses, that creates a craving that we would come back to, that we would need to feed, that leads to some sort of attachment, and then we become entrapped in it, and we need that craving again and again, and it has to get stronger and stronger in a lot of cases. So that brings us to a question, why do we crave certain things, and why do those things become addicting? Like, why sugar? Why, why certain drugs? Why coffee? Why are those things addicting? Well, because they create some sort of stimulation in us that's like a buzz. Now, the system that we live in has scientifically mastered the art of creating cravings. Nowhere is this more evident than in the video game industry. The entire industry is in competition to see who can create the most addicting video game, and there is no shame about it. It's just the way it is. A guy named Jason Crowen wrote an article uh, a couple of years ago, titled How I Lost $9,000 on an iPhone Game. He said there are five reasons why, at the time, Game of War was like the most uh, addictive game out on the market. And it, there were five reasons why it gets people to spend as much money as they spent. Because the average person that year was spending $500. That means there were a lot of people not spending anything and a lot of people spending tons of money on this game just trying to keep their armies alive. He said there's five reasons. Number one, they ease you into the transactions. Now, don't all addictions start with this? There's like some sort of gateway. There's like a free month involved or maybe somebody offers you a free drink or there's some sort of like, hey, this isn't bad for your health just to do one. This isn't that bad. And so there's a gateway that will ease you in. He said, number two, you don't get to keep what you buy. So in that game, like you'll lose the men that you buy or you'll lose the weapons that you buy. The game stimulates you and needs you le needing it again. Now, if, if an addiction were uh, or lasting fulfillment, you'd use it once and be done, but it leaves you empty and wanting again. Number three said, the game's confusing menus trick you out of cash. On that particular game, there are 167 different statistics to try to keep improving. He said it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole, so you never know if you've done enough. You are always going to be moving to the next statistic to try to improve it, and you will lose, tra lose track of how much you have invested in this. Like every good addiction does this. You get in and you are using and you forget how far you are in it. You have no idea how many dollars you've wasted on it or how much time you've wasted on it because you don't want to know. You're afraid to look in your bank statement or the record of hours that you spent on it. And you don't want to look because if you did, you'd know that it was crazy and that might convict you enough to stop doing it. And it feels so good. Now, uh, number four, he said, you have to pay not to play. Isn't that what a good addiction does? When you get this wrapped up in it, you have to pay to not play. The coffee that you thinking about quitting, you know you're going to get a headache, right? That, that phone, if you put it down, you're going to lose money, aren't you? You might. You might lose 
your job if you decide to quit working so much after hours. There are all kinds of ways that you have to pay to not play once you've gotten into an addiction because you've invested so much in it. He said, number five, the addiction can cost you everything. He said, had I known about the time and money commitment, I would have never started. In fact, I would have laughed in your face if you told me a year ago that I would spend $9,000 on this game. That's the way our addictions work. We have no idea that it could possibly get that bad until it's gotten that bad. Now, here's the deal. We live in a marketing society. The same science that purposely designs video games to meet a need is behind almost all consumer marketing. Make it more appealing, make it more sexy, make it more attractive, make it more stimulating to our senses, and you have a better chance of people getting hooked. So think about our five senses. Which of them haven't we completely desensitized in our society? Our sound. How often do you get in the quiet? Is there sound going on all the time? The music that you have, does it have to be the absolute best thing all the time because you're kind of picky on your music and it's all competing? Um, even in my classroom, I've got kids working over here on one thing and I've got kids in a small group over there and I've got kids back here on the computers. And it's just like always, always, always the sound has to get louder or more attractive in order to get to us. What about uh, sight? I mean, there are three screens going on at one time. you got constant motion to keep you engaged. Games are competing for the best graphics, virtual reality. they got autoplay on the videos so that you just like scroll past and it's just going to keep on sucking you in to the site like you don't even type uh, normal text status updates anymore you have to have the colored box with the giant letters to even compete with all the other people on social media <clears throat> so we spend hours to look the best that we can and nobody's even looking because we just we just have to compete with everybody else smells i mean like from restaurants to perfumes to shampoo scents to candles air fresheners in our car our emotions, we have extremified language. Like, everything has to be awesome. Everything, no, awesome, hold on, that's 10 years old. Everything has to be epic. Well, we don't know what's past epic anymore because we've kind of like hit the end of the road on there. But like, I, you know, look, the burrito that you had yesterday is not epic, okay? So like, we've been straining to make everything more and more extreme from our senses to the words that we use to the deodorant that we use like i used to wear regular deodorant that was it it was like a white bar of chalk that said regular on it and my life was not lacking i never went to the counselor and cried my eyes out and said you know i just like feel this empty hole in my armpits that i just can't seem to feel i need some good deodorant that did not happen but some reason now, if I walk in, it's like, well, the regular's not good enough. You got to have that seventy-two hour protection stuff. <laughs> uh, coffee is just not coffee anymore, right? It's got to have all the stuff in it. My shampoo can't just be strawberry. It's got to be mountain fresh strawberry. Um, in reality, what we're doing is we're running a competition to see what can get us more and more and more stimulated and what can get our attention more and more and more and it's even happened with our rest time how many of you have taken a vacation and you come back more tired than when you left because you had to have like awesome extreme vacation you had to get like the the best rest possible which is not even rest right this is all ingested by a society who is sort of stuck in this thing of like believing that something over the rainbow out there stimulate me and fill a void in me. This is ingested by people who perhaps aren't engaged in real living. And if we're not careful, we will listen to the forces of the world that will tell us that the solution to every problem is to speed up, consume more, faster. 
and we will become overstimulated. We have become overstimulated, desensitized, needing more and more and more to keep up with all of the highs that our five senses demand. We are worn out and tired by it all. You can go to the pharmacy aisle and find a five-hour energy somewhere close to the Zequil sleep aids. And how many people are taking both? Like we take one to get us up in the morning because we're so tired and we take the other to calm us down at night so we can go to sleep. Our taste buds are dead. Like uh, I teach at a poor school and my kids are malnourished. They have plenty of calories, but they won't eat it unless it's super spicy Doritos or flaming Hot Cheetos or Takis or donuts with like the icing with the corn syrup and red food dye in a can. They are getting no nutrition because they're opting for the extreme everything. Now, the market will do that to you if you just follow the market forces. The market shamelessly needs you to need it. And it's getting worse and worse in its bid to get your attention or your affection. Corporations are becoming like that sleazy stalker boyfriend that won't stop texting you. Like, don't you think loyalty cards are a bit creepy? Can I get somebody with me on that? Like, I can't buy an avocado without having to, like, sign a contract that says I love you to my grocery store. (laughs) And while we're at it, like, subscription programs, I've got to be a member to buy your stuff there. I mean, come on, creepy stalker corporations. Um... I go to a mega church, and we've had a lot of discussions because our service, I mean, it's playing right into all of this. It's like a rock band, and all of your senses are completely saturated. They get the fog and the lights and the great music blaring, and it's really, really emotional. It's this addictive worship service. Then you go to a regular church service, and you're like, oh, this is kind of boring. And it's a really complicated issue because people won't even come out to church if it's not awesome like that. And at the same time, are we just playing into market competition? So there's all these questions that that come into play there. Um, Tristan Harris is an ex-Google engineer who now heads up a nonprofit because uh, he saw what he described as a battle to the bottom of the brainstem between the major companies. Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Yahoo, all of them are in a fierce competition for the same limited resource, and he calls it an arms race for your attention. So every time one of them makes an upgrade, it threatens the others, and their job is to get you to spend more time on site. And to do that, it has to become more addictive. So everything in all of the apps and websites are are maximized, uh, are trying to maximize time on site down to the smallest detail. Like, I mean, little things like, did you know that when somebody makes a friend request, Facebook holds on to it? And then they give it to you at the most opportune time for you to like get you to like Facebook. You knew all the things in your newsfeed are specifically arranged in a very studied way in order to get you engaged and keep you on site the longest. Everything from autoplay video on YouTube to the color red on your little notifications bell. Like red, is it really an emergency that somebody liked your video? Seriously, um, there's lots of evidence that more time on site on any of these sites makes us more likely to be diagnosed with depression and this becomes a spiral downwards because we are bonding to something that is stimulating our senses. I want to suggest to you that all addictions from methamphetamines to Facebook are essentially the same because they are born of the same biological phenomenon. And now we actually understand the mechanisms better than ever. So I want to tell you a few things about the science of it. Um, One, addiction is a biologically explainable problem, but it's often not been explained in helpful ways. So I've seen tons of articles that all, all want to talk about the brain chemistry behind addiction, and they'll throw out all these fancy terms about structure changes and how it makes your brain rewired and all of these words like dopamine and stuff, and that we toss it over into medical land because we think, oh, well, it's a brain structure thing, so it has to do with like chemicals and all that. And since it's over my head and I don't understand it, it must not have to do with me, and it must not be anything I'm consciously aware of because there's nothing that could have been happening to change all this. So, But listen, 
every time you have a thought in your brain, your brain structure changes a little bit. It should not be that surprising to you if you have patterns of thinking and living over the long term when the scientist looks at your brain and says, hey, it's wired differently. Of course it does, because your brain is rewiring constantly all day long, every day. That's kind of what it does. You are completely 100% a physical being. Now, if you're a spiritual person and that bothers you uh, because it sounds like you're not spiritual, let me invite you to the world where physical is spiritual. Everything you think, every fear you have, is a biological mechanism happening. Now, the great thing is, after all the science we've done, we're finding out that while there's tons of factors, like dozens or hundreds of different factors that combine together to create everyone's individual story of addiction, it's actually not that difficult to explain the big picture because they're all together under one umbrella. And even the best of all, regardless of the causes, there's one solution to addiction. I want to share with you five minutes of a talk that changed the way I see the world. This is Johan Hari gave a TED talk back in, I think, 2014. And it was right in the middle of a time when I was doing a lot of therapy classes for kids with early childhood trauma and attachment issues. And I was seeing this firsthand up close. And I saw this video, but I'm going to share five minutes of it. And this changed my life. But let's start with what we think we know, what I thought I know, right? Let's think about this middle row here, right? Imagine all of you for 20 days now went off and used heroin three times a day. Some of you look a little bit more enthusiastic than others at this prospect. Um, the, don't worry, it's just a thought experiment. Imagine you did that, right? What, do we, what would happen? Now, we have a story about what would happen that we've been told for a century. We think because there are chemical hooks in heroin, as you took it for a while, your body would become dependent on those hooks, you'd start to physically need them, and at the end of those 20 days, you'd all be heroin addicts, right? That's what I thought. First thing that alerted me to the fact something not right with this story when it was explained to me, if I step out of this TED Talk today and I get hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's actually much better heroin than you're ever going to buy on the streets because the stuff you buy from a drug dealer is contaminated, actually very little of it is heroin, whereas the stuff you get from the doctor is medically pure. And you'll be given it for quite a long period of time. There are loads of people in this room who may not realize that you've taken quite a lot of heroin, right? Uh, and, for, and anyone watching this anywhere in the world, this is happening. And if what we believe about addiction is right, those people are exposed to all those chemical hooks. What should happen? They should become addicts. This has been studied really carefully. It doesn't happen. You will have noticed if your grandmother had a hip replacement, she didn't come out as a junkie. <laughs> and when I learned this, it just seemed so weird to me, so contrary to everything I'd been told, everything I thought I knew, I just thought it couldn't be right. Until I went and met a man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who carried out an incredible experiment that I think really helps us to understand this issue. Professor Alexander explained to me, the idea of addiction we've all got in our heads, that story, comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You can do them tonight when you go home if you feel a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's how we think it works. In the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at this experiment and he noticed something. He said, ah, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try something a bit different. So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of tunnels. Crucially, They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. You go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated to 0% overdose when they have happy and connected lives. Now, when we first saw this, Professor Alexander thought, you know, maybe this is just a thing about rats, they're quite different to us, you know, not, maybe not as different as we'd like, but, you know. Um, but fortunately, there was a human experiment into the exact same principle happening at the exact same time. It was called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of all American troops were using loads of heroin. 
And、uh, if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, "My God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends." It made total sense. Now, those soldiers who were using loads of heroin were followed home. The archives of general psychiatry did a really detailed study, and what happened to them? It turns out they didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped. Now, if you believe the story about chemical hooks, that makes absolutely no sense. But Professor Alexander began to think there might be a different story about addiction. He said, "What if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an adaptation to your environment?" Looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who said, "Maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Human beings." Have a natural and innate need to bond, and when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now, that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis, but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings, and I think. You know, at first, I found this quite a difficult thing to get my head round. But one way that helped me to think about it is, and I can see, you know, I've got over by my seat there a bottle of water, right? I'm looking at lots of you, and lots of you have bottles of water with you, right? Forget drugs, forget the drug war. Totally legally, all of those bottles of water could be bottles of vodka, right? We could all be getting drunk, I might, after this.、Um, and But we're not, right? Now, because you've been able to afford the approximately a gazillion pounds that it costs to get into a TED talk, I'm guessing you guys could afford to be drinking vodka for the next six months. You wouldn't end up homeless. You're not going to do that. And the reason you're not going to do that is not because anyone's stopping you. It's because you've got bonds and connections that you want to be present for. You've got work you love. You've got people you love. You've got healthy relationships. And a core part of addiction. I came to think, and I believe the evidence suggests, is about not being able to bear to be present in your life, because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Thank you. The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Like I said before, whenever I first heard that, I was I was dealing with all sorts of、um, issues revolving childhood trauma and attachment, and、um, it was like something just came alive in me because、um, all these things that had never made sense before started to make sense. When you see someone who is allowing a substance as deeply destructive as these things. And you're not addicted to those, and you're like, how could somebody possibly be addicted to something like methamphetamines or、uh, some sort of really bad alcohol addiction? The thing that you're missing is just how deeply hurt and lonely they are. Now, if you listen to all of that nerdy, sciencey stuff that I told you about the brain forming、uh, in the connection episode, here's where all that comes into play. Your brain. Formed specifically, all five of its senses,、um, everything about it just about formed to connect with other people and have its needs met through connection. And when it does,、uh, you develop this healthy、uh, oxytocin system. That's your bonding chemical uh, that uh, your brain releases whenever you bond with another person. And your dopamine receptors open up, and reward centers light up in your brain whenever you're connecting with another. Person, because it stimulates you in a really good and healthy way. And guess what? Any addicting substance or behavior does it does the same thing. Re- reward centers of your brain that were designed to bond with people and make you healthy. When that happens, they bond with something else, and it leaves you a little bit attached to the something else and a little bit less attached to the people. Around you. So when you find yourself in those times where you are in your boredom or in your loneliness or your lack of connection, and you use something else to stimulate you, and you kept doing that and you kept doing that, you eventually developed a new pattern. Instead of going to other people to fill that void in you and finding healthy connections with family and fun with friends and purpose, you started attaching to things that were not human. It is dehumanizing, 
precisely because being attached to humans is at the very heart of being human itself. Being attached to other things makes us less than human. Now, you may be thinking a lot of things. Uh, one of them, you may be thinking, well, I don't. I, I know these guys who, they get drunk together. They're not lonely. They all have this big party and all go, oh yeah, no, um, let, let's do some probing on that and find out. Like, just start go meddling in their emotions and in their relationship with their parents and in their past history and their childhood and, and their spouse and their marriage relationship. You are most likely going to find out that most people who appear to not be lonely are a lot more lonely than it appears. In the end, it's not the hook. It's the cage. You have no idea how lonely some of the people are around you. And so so here I am working daily with kids who have experienced trauma sometimes before they could even remember. And it never made sense to me now, but I can see it so clearly. Uh, I used to wonder, why would this kid have this thing happen to them when they're like one or younger or a baby? And how does that make them more likely to become an addict or a, a criminal or something whenever they're 20? And now it's like, oh, of course it does. Of course they're more likely to commit violent crimes. They don't even realize the path that they're on, but you can see it coming. Um, many people, including addicts, don't see it. Uh, like one study examined patients with uh, polytoxic drug use, like multiple drugs, and they showed that uh, 70% of the people that they studied who were drug users, 70% of the females and 50% of the males who used drugs had been sexually abused as children. That is amazing. But what was fascinating is that 80% of the drug users themselves never connected or related their drug abuse to their childhood trauma. They had no idea that their childhood trauma was actually influencing them to go down that path. Because, listen, our childhood, our past, it isn't a place that we like stand outside of and look, uh, it's, it's not a place in the world that we look at. It's a place that we stand inside of and we look at the rest of the world from. It's our window to the rest of the world. You have no idea all the assumptions that other people live with that they don't vocalize because they think they don't have to precisely because they assume everybody else would obviously think the same way precisely because it is their worldview. Am I making sense? So all of these things that we don't vocalize until we get deep into therapy sessions. And guess what? You and I are people too. In the end, it's not the hook. It's the cage. Addiction is a universal problem. Not, there's no one person is better off than another at the deep, deep down levels of being human. Addiction is a universal problem that forms from a rotting of the soul that is lacking connection and purpose. All humans everywhere on different levels. Different levels of isolation, loneliness, non-attachment. They lend themselves to different levels of stimulation needed to make up for it or they allow you to snowball deeper and deeper into the uh, into being attached to those things because for some reason you had a bad experience with people and facing people is not going to be real easy. And so uh, pretty firmly attached to the humans and the people around you that love you, like you have pretty healthy relationships with your family, you're probably going to stop at pretty simple, not that destructive addictions like little sugar, you know, well, if you're comfortable in your own skin, maybe maybe a glass of wine at night, but you're not going to let yourself spiral down into a really, really destructive one because, you know, you're pretty well connected. But if you have a pretty big gaping hole in your soul because you experienced early abandonment from a parent or you are majorly rejected or you had some sort of trauma at an early age, that one's probably going to take a lot more to fill that hole than a frappe is going to provide. You're probably going to need a little bit more to take the edge off. And that's whenever you can move into things that are harder and harder and more destructive. It is physically, emotionally, mentally dehumanizing 
and if you allow yourselves further and further down that path you probably won't realize it but the people around you will and they'll say why but the thing that I want all of us to hear is when you find yourself asking why would that person allow that destructive thing to happen to them the real question I want you to ask is how could I not have noticed how lonely and how disconnected that person has felt this entire time now a couple more things that are a little depressing and then I want to get to good news okay so these are things that we just need to be totally aware of because we live in this world um, systems have evolved to perpetuate this so uh, our criminal justice system oh my goodness think about what we do whenever somebody is addicted to a substance we don't know what to do with them so if someone is on illegal drugs illicit drugs what do we do with them they are like they're in their own cage and what do we do with them because we don't know what else to do with them we put them physically in a cage behind bars and then we're like well we don't know why this is not getting any better <laughs> um there are industries out there, and I spoke some of the to, about some of these earlier. But I want you to think about the industries that need us to be unhealthy. There are all sorts of ways that the the systems out there are sort of fighting against this. Um, the alcoholic beverage industry. There was a study that came out uh, a few years ago that said is if you took the top ten percent of adult drinkers the people who drank the most, the top decile of drinkers, and you averaged it out, those people are drinking somewhere upwards of 70 to 75 drinks per week. That's 10 alcoholic beverages per day. Now, I thought that sounded a little high, so I did uh, some other research with some other studies, and I realized that it's really not that high. Uh, it may be a little lower than that, but at bare minimum, here's the stat that is really wowing to me. If you were to take that top 10%, whatever the number is of drinks that they drink, if you were to move it down and you were to get those people just as healthy as the next 10%, so you were to like move them down from drinking 70 drinks per week down to about two a day, 15 per week, then that would cost the alcoholic beverage industry at minimum 50% of their business. 50% of the alcoholic beverage uh, revenue would disappear overnight if the 10% of the unhealthiest people just got as healthy as the next 10%. And you have to say, do they... How bad do they really want people to stop drinking and get healthy? Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, we've got 25% of, or 20%, 25 if you're female, percent of our population is on psychotropic medications. And we've got an opioid crisis that is just crazy in this country. And you have to wonder, well, what would happen if everyone actually developed really, really healthy relationships and it led into a world of uh, more emotional health and we weren't propping up these industries anymore? I wonder if there are forces out there that are almost uh, fighting against our health and I don't know because I do know that there are people in these industries and they are regular, normal people who don't want people to be unhealthy. And at the same time, their jobs depend on what they're doing. I was at a dinner one time for an area of foster care parents uh, through the agency that we were a part of. And the guy leading the prayer over the dinner prayed that the foster care system would have to be shut down and that this entire thing would go out of business. It was just like a little bit shocking uh, because there's a lot of social workers standing around there and we just prayed that they would lose their job. <laughs> there's like people involved in this. And so sometimes these systems, these large rolling spheres of people in the large scale work to perpetuate the business of creating problems and then fixing them. Um, now, I told you I was going to end on good news. And here it is, the best news that I can give you in all of this is this to this day in 2017 there is still yet to be a drug as powerful as human connection there is nothing that someone else is addicted to that has a biological stronghold over them that is too difficult to break with human 
connection. Human connection may be expensive because we have jobs and bills and nobody got time for that. But the best news out here is when you put life in its proper perspective and all of the other things that we run after and chase after aren't really that important, human connection becomes a lot less expensive and it can save us from running and chasing after the wind. In my class, for the most uh, needy kids that I have in my class, for the ones who are the lowest performing, the ones that we have to do something about, we skip all of the video games, we skip all of the fun, cool, interactive things for the most part. We sit down with them one-on-one -on -one and we listen to them and we ask them questions and they respond back to us. It's the same way that a baby learns how to interact with the world. We ask them, they interact with us, and we listen to them. And when we listen to people, no matter what stage they're in, they grow. They grow emotionally, they grow mentally, and they grow more connected to other humans. They grow in their own sense of self-worth. They grow in their own sense of value. Whenever somebody else pours out to you and you give them your ears, they are going to grow, and it's more powerful of a of of a force of growth for that person than anything else that you can give them. You and your ability to listen to somebody else's story and to connect with them and share with them in the purposes of life is powerful enough to overcome any other addiction or attachment that somebody finds themselves stuck in. I've gone on several mission trips. Uh, several of them were so good where there would be like a group of people who just got into vans or got on an airplane and we went to this place together and then there we just meshed. I mean like family, like we were having so much fun and we were like laughing, telling jokes, listening to the same songs together, playing music together, sitting up late at night, talking, having devotionals and really getting to know each other's flaws, knowing each other in and out, through and through, having grace for one another, sleeping in the same dorm rooms, making memories. And there's been times on those trips where I've had a friend who is an addict of, to, to some great degree would come along it was almost like their addictions weren't even a big deal and they wouldn't even notice. And then later we would we would we would realize oh my goodness i hadn't struggled with that all week long and and i would notice you know my addictions vanished too those little petty things that i used to do back home that i, I hadn't done that at all this we hadn't even felt the need to do that this week i didn't notice because I was caught up into something bigger than myself. I was caught up into something that left me not wanting or lonely. And that is a mission and a purpose for our lives. Now, what the world would have you believe is that all of this is way too complicated. And there's a, there, there is a difference between something being easy and something being simple. Now, I can tell you that this is not easy at all. But what I am here to suggest today is that it's actually incredibly simple. And, and not only am I saying it, but more and more clearly, the research is saying it, that your path out of addiction is connection to other people. And it's not just connection to other people, but it's connection to a higher purpose and a higher sense of meaning. When you get together with other people on a mission for a purpose and here's the key in 100% grace and acceptance and love just like family your addictions start to lose their power over you now a lot of people are going to say things like well I don't like people Seth that sounds like a horrible mission trip you went on <laughs> let me give you some options because if you if you say I don't like people what you just said was biologically incorrect. You are the most social mammal on the planet. <laughs> maybe you're an introvert. And so maybe what you mean is people wear me out quickly. Like I go to like 30 seconds of a party and I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm reading a book now. But don't say you don't like people. 
because I'm pretty sure you, you you like the people that wrote the book that you're reading. You're listening to me on a podcast is symbolic of the fact that you, at some level, like people and want to hear from people. People are the subject of Netflix that you're watching, right? So maybe you're an introvert and you can't handle a lot of intense interaction. I get it. But you still need to connect with people. Maybe you don't like stupidity and you see, <laughs> you see it all the time. Cool. Me neither. I don't like stupidity either. Give me a fist bump. Uh, maybe you don't like pressure of conformity. Like you're, you're worried that you're going to have to fit in with all these other people. And, and that's coming from a place where you've experienced no grace at some point in the past. And you felt like you had to be something in order to earn somebody else's love. Um, maybe you're afraid of people in social situations or in crowds. And there are reasons for that in your past. But don't say you don't like people because that's a lie. You are a completely social creature. You wouldn't have stomached all of this time with me if you didn't like people. Connection can look a lot of different ways. And addiction can look a lot of different ways. But connection is your purpose and the driving force of all you do. And it is the way out of your addiction. And the world needs now more than ever for you to connect with a group of people in mission. A group of people who love each other like family and who are on mission together. I am not a doctor, I'm not a counselor, but I've dealt with a ton of addicts, and I am one, and so are you, and I'm telling you that connecting people together on mission is the win. I have talked to numerous people of all different flavors, and they are confirming this. I had one who is an alcoholic for over two decades who told me, you know, I never knew what it was, but ever since I could remember, I had this insatiable need to be liked. And even though I knew right from wrong, it was not enough. If I could get you to like me, that overrode everything. I would do all kinds of things to get people to like me. So it didn't matter if mom and dad spanked me. didn't matter what they said at church. I knew it was the right thing to do, but I had to be liked so badly. I would have done anything to make that happen. And that guy has now found connection, and he's living more of a purpose. Um, I would ask us to stop demeaning people and shoving them into corners and pigeonholing them as if they're different than us so that we create an us-them mentality because it's really just all us and we're all in this together. A couple thousand years ago, there were a group of people who connected across borders and they shared everything they had. They were people of all different uh, colors and backgrounds, uh, races, languages, And they became a part of this legacy where they believed in grace and they believed in love and they believed in putting each other above themselves. And they believed that they had a mission to change the fundamental way that the world works. And I'm a part of that legacy. And I still believe in it. And I still believe in the end what they believed 2,000 years ago, that love wins. It's the holiday season, people. May you go full into your holidays and connect And may you please put your screens down and talk to each other. Like, please, I hope you're not listening to this podcast while you're sitting on the couch next to family that you're ignoring. Please, put your phone on silence. Don't substitute. Go for the real deal. Do something fun together. Love your family. Love the people that it's hardest to love. Go find somebody who's lonely this holiday season. Go waste a little money. Have some fun. Do it together. Eat some chocolate while you're there. Do it with the people that you love. Merry Christmas, everybody. Here's to a great 2018 that's better than ever. I love you all.